there. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my incredible co-host, Sarah Marshall, and we will both be joined by the fabulous Princess Weeks to talk about the age of innocence. More on that in a minute. First, I want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support, thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash good. We have bonus episodes that show up over there, fun conversations typically that are kind of like the ones that we have on the show, but usually uh, broader in scope and focus. Our last fun conversation was about grief and mourning, <laughs> although we've heard just lovely things from people about how meaningful and helpful of a conversation that was or has been for them to listen to, and that means so much to me, it means so much to Sarah. We just recorded a uh, new bonus episode that uh, the audio got screwed up on. So (laughs) you won't hear that. (laughs) But what it does mean is Sarah and I were like, "Mm, what should we do our next bonus about? You know, one that we record and it uh, all works out. And we decided upon who framed Roger Rabbit. So the next bonus episode will be about who framed Roger Rabbit. So join us for that, won't you? You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is also made possible with support from Knack Factory. Thank you so much to the fine folks at Knack Factory. It's a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, that they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, please get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And finally, we always have a playlist to accompany each of our episodes. The playlist uh, just features songs that come to mind when we think about this conversation, when we think about this movie. Not necessarily songs from the movies. Sometimes folks are like, but why didn't you include, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. (laughs) Now I'm trying to think of like a signature song from a movie. Why didn't you include My Heart Will Go On? Maybe we even included that when we we did Titanic. I can't remember. That's not what it's about. It's about what... We think about what we feel when we think about the conversation about the movie. And then, you know, we draw a little inspiration from the movie itself. So check that out. All right. We talked with Princess Weeks. It was obviously great. Princess Weeks is the fucking greatest. (laughs) We're so lucky to have had Princess on. We talked about The Age of Innocence. The Age of Innocence is, of course, a 1993 American historical romantic drama film directed by Martin Scorsese. The screenplay is an adaptation of the 1920 novel The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. The film stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. That's it for the intro. Hey, thanks for being here. You can find us on social media, by the way, Twitter, Instagram, at YouAreGoodPod. You are good, everybody. Thanks for being here. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed, or as they said in the 1870s, New York. How are ya? <laughs> what are we, Sarah, what's going on between the two of us? What are we sharing in common right now? Is it that it's Taurus season? It's Taurus season. We're both the birthday boy, and we're back in the car again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When we first started recording the show, I feel like there were a lot of times where you, you would just be in some location and we you'd be recording from a car. And this is one of those situations in which we're both 
in that very situation. This we, has we're... never happened before. We've never had a two-car show before. I'm excited. <laughs> we're joining from parking lots in um, the West and East Coast, uh, respectively. Yeah. And Sarah, tell me, uh, what movie are we watching today and who are we watching it with? We are discussing a Martin Scorsese film. It's a nice pre-casino post-Goodfellas vintage called The Age of Innocence. It's based on a novel by a broad named Edith Wharton. And we're talking about it with Princess Weeks. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. I love this movie. I love y'all. <laughs> oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> I'm so excited for this movie for spring. I'm so excited because I feel like when Sarah presented the movies, Princess, that you you would want to talk about, I don't think like in any situation where people like talk about Martin Scorsese, I don't think many people go straight to the age of innocence. Well, it's his best movie, so they're wrong. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm so, so happy. This was my first time watching it. I can't wait to talk about this. Oh, so yeah. exciting. Princess, tell us tell us some things about yourself. My name is Princess Weeks. I am a pop culture writer for the Mary Sue website. I also do YouTube essays on the channel. It used to be Melinda Pendulum and now it's just my name, Princess Weeks. I just love talking about like pop culture and feminism and all that stuff that gets you trolls online. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just reasonable content. Um, I also co-host and co-write uh, the It's Lit series on PBS Digital Studios and I host the podcast It's Lit Unabridged and mm. I love Edith Warden. I'm part of the Sarah Marshall Stan Club and I'm really excited mm. to be here and talk about what I think is one of Scorsese's sexiest and most erotic yes. films. Yeah. Scorsese really can do everything. And this is just an example. Like yes. he can do a romantic period drama and it is just as hot as Bridgerton season two. Oh my God. Yes. I love it. I was I was talking a friend of mine, uh, I don't know what he is, but he works for a guy who used to <laughs> Is he a bag man? Is your friend a bag man? <laughs> I know. I don't even know how to describe. He works for a guy who used to. He, he was like a comedy writer in the sixties and seventies, and he he worked for the Carol Burnett Show, and he worked for like the Smothers Brothers, all this other stuff. Wrote great comedy. This friend was telling me about how this guy got an invitation to go see Ant Man and the Wasp, or or the 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 Ant Man sequel. I don't know what it. Yeah. I don't ultimately, know what it's called. He went to go see it, and, I, and evidently Michelle Pfeiffer's in that movie, and Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer is phenomenal in this movie. And Michelle Pfeiffer was in the movie for five minutes, and A, the guy had no idea that it was a Marvel movie and part of an overall franchise, so he was very <laughs> perplexed the whole time. And he's like 80, and the second is he's like, you got Michelle Pfeiffer, the finest woman in all of cinema, and you only use her for five minutes? It's true. <laughs> it's correct. <laughs> And here we have Michelle Pfeiffer blazing. Yeah. It should be called Michelle Pfeiffer and Ant-Man. Yeah. Oh, my God. We have Michelle just on fire. Yes. She's on Pfeiffer, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> this girl is on Pfeiffer. Oh, we're back. <laughs> and Pfizer. <laughs> Sarah, tell us what this is. Okay. I'm going to try and keep this description brief because that's an initiative we're trying. <laughs> I have to just pre preface this by saying... I love Martin Scorsese 
so much. Like, Alex, you know, I often just text you randomly about how much I love Marty. And I call this him is Marty true. because that's what his fans do. We call him Marty as if we're friends. Yes. And I had only before prepping for this episode seen a scene from this movie in a high school English class. But I always like to bring up the age of innocence when people on Twitter are like, Martin Scorsese just makes dumb movies for bros. And I'm like, excuse me, Marty is one of God's gifts to us. And he loves movies more than anyone will ever love movies. And he made The Age of Innocence. But I was using it as more of a rebuttal than a movie that to watch. And so watching it this time, I think, A, it is a movie about flowers mm -hmm. and the people mm. who purchase them and stand around next to them. And it's a movie about beautiful food. <laughs> the people who eat it but it's also about <laughs> daniel day lewis playing archer wait newland archer not archer newland <laughs> mm -hmm. either way is white enough that it would work honestly <laughs> <laughs> we're off to a great start <laughs> last name first name last name last name and he is engaged to the lovely winona writer playing may welland and so he shows up at the opera we open on the opera marty loves his opera and newland meets may's cousin played by michelle pfeiffer who has just returned from europe her character ellen olenska has just separated from her grody polish count husband and she's just a, a a marked woman. Is that the phrase? What's the phrase? She's, I'm she's a for? fallen woman. She's a fallen woman. Exactly. And she can't get she's up. She's La Traviata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she needs Life Alert, and its name is Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> it's it's Newland Life Alert Archer. Um. <laughs> so this movie starts out with like. You know, I was watching it and I was reflecting on the Sex in the City episode titled 20-something girls versus 30-something women. Oh, and yes. I was like, wow, like, who could watch this and not be like, mm, I wonder if this, like, adult, gorgeous woman with, like, tragedy and life experience who just played Catwoman is going to prove irresistible to this young man introduced to this very young, pure, boring lady. And that's hmm. what happens. Mm -hmm. And basically, she wants to get divorced. He kind of schools her on how New York society works, which is a lot of what this movie is depicting. And also, and my first inevitable casino comparison here, which is that Casino is such a fun movie, partly because it's our two narrator characters, Ace and Nikki, taking us into a corrupt casino, a mob-controlled casino, and explaining a big system to us. We have like Joe Pesci, walking us into the count room as the camera dollies into the count room and being like, they had so much fucking money in there, they could have built a house out of $100 bills. And we get the equivalent of that in this movie with a female narrator basically being Edith Wharton. And I think this movie is an incredible feat of literary adaptation, and I'm excited to talk about that as we continue. But yes, yeah, so basically, Newland helps... Ellen handle how to reintegrate into society, how to understand how people are talking about her behind her back the whole time, what to not do, which is basically everything. And obviously they fall very much in love and they make out a little bit. And it's just like that part in Casino where Joe Pesci and Sharon Stone start to make out a little bit, but they stop themselves because they're not in the mobster movie. They're in the 1870s New York movie. And basically they hold each other like Madonna and child in the Pieta, I think, pretty much. And then they're like, okay, bye, bye. 
And then Newland and May get married. They have a baby boy who is Robert Sean Leonard. I was starting to think I hallucinated it until he shows up for for three cool minutes at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, his scenes must have been cutter. And then I was like, there he is. Robert Sean, historical movie Leonard. There's our sweet baby boy. Yeah, he's our sweet baby. (laughs) This is like right around the same time he was in Much Ado About Nothing, a truly underrated Shakespeare adaptation. The only one that I know of that cast Denzel Washington in the early 90s. And it's perfect. It's what made Tom Hiddleston want to be an actor. And for that, we can all be grateful. (gasps) That makes total sense because he's such a, oh my God. Wow. Wow. Okay. This is wonderful. (laughs) I love cinema. So Newland and Ellen are reunited later on. They have the opportunity to have an affair again. And then Ellen is like, nope, bye, because May is pregnant and with Robert Sean Leonard. And then May dies and everyone lives a long life. This movie is very Babette's Feast, mm. um, where it's just like, let's just love each other from afar and then, you know, gaze at each other when we're old and eat soup. But unlike Babette's Feast, basically we get the chance to have Newland be reunited with Ellen as they're both like quite elderly, but still looking great. And Robert Sean Leonard is like, you know, when mom was dying, she told me that us, the kids, would always be safe with you because you had given up the thing you wanted most because she asked you. And basically, the narrator tells us that Newland is like, wow, that makes me so happy that my wife understood that about me and pitied me and knew that I was in love with Ellen the whole time. And then she died. And then he's like, you go see Ellen, Robert Sean Leonard. I'm going to sit here on the street and think about that. And then he sees like a little flash of light on the window, which I don't really know what that signifies. I want to discuss that. And then he's like, well, that's that. I'm going to walk away now. And then they play the walking away music. And it's just like (laughs) it's it's so erotic and poignant. And I feel like it really does feel like such a true love story and also a love story of like the tragedy of heteropatriarchy essentially making it impossible to have a love and a relationship at the same time. That was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah, I'm excited for my future and brief summaries. <laughs> Can you speak quickly before we jump into it to the dynamic that cleaves them apart? There's other things at play that split that you know that split the affair. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the theme of the movie starting out is that Ellen comes back to town after this apparently disastrous marriage. And she's used to being in Europe where apparently people are less uptight than in New York City. I believe it. In the 1870s. (laughs) (laughs) It does make sense, I guess, because those people are insecure about being like made up society people rather than like lords or whatever. Super made up people. They're like, we haven't been made up long enough to feel validated. So we should trash this woman. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Oh, my God. I love it. You know, it's also about the fact that he really loves May and she's a good person. And it's not an adult love, I think. But I mean, what do you guys think? I can't answer this by myself. Let's start with this. Yeah, Princess, tell us. First, tell us why you brought why this you brought this one to us. Okay. Um, I went through a phase where I was like, I just want to watch cinema, but I want to watch cinema for soft girls. So I was like, I watched this, 
Wings of the Dove, like all of the, everything with Helena Bonham Carter before she met Tim Burton, I consumed. So A Room with the View, all of it. And I love The Age of Innocence because it felt like such a different role for my beloved Winona Ryder. And I was so surprised to see like, this is a Scorsese movie. And I was just really curious to see like this dynamic of these three actors that are still in the conversation, um, that have very interesting, compelling relationships. And I love Edith Wharton, um, just as like, you know, history book nerd. Um, Edith Wharton was an American novelist. She was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for the Age of Innocence. Whoa! Um, that's really, that's, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, she won it in like 1921. She is from old money, like she, like basically the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. She, her cousins were the Astors. You know, her family went all the way back to the Revolutionary War. She was born hmm. during the Civil War. So she wrote this book, The Age of Innocence, to capture what was essentially her childhood. And Hmm. it's really interesting because in it, you see a lot of anxiety about what it means to be in love. And it really has so much empathy, both this and The House of Mirth, which she writes, which she wrote before, I believe, is really consumed with like, what does it mean to be a woman in a society where love is taboo, depending on who you love. Mm. And no matter what you do, you can never really be free, Mm. even when you have money, because that's the thing, she was very rich. (laughs) But even with that wealth, there's still an anchor around her, her ankle. And I think The Age of Innocence really is about two women who fall in love with a man and both of them trying to make the best cultural choices for themselves. Like, I love May. I, I think she's a perfect example of topping mm. from the bottom as, um... Yes! <laughs> wow. And Winona does it so elegantly. Because Winona does this thing where, like, she's like... So good. Do you, like, love somebody else? Like, do you, like, want to go? And he's just like, I mean, I don't... And she's like, okay, then we're not. So, fine. And it's like, I just love all of her energy of how she's like... She gives him a little bit of rope to be like, you could leave. But I'd be really sad and embarrassed. And then she just gets him back. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Use that soft power. <laughs> yeah, every angle, like not angle to, to say as if, as if it's conniving, but like every time we get like more than a few lines from Winona, we see her knowing yeah. something, which is really interesting. Like She's like the, the wife in nine to five, Franklin Hart's wife. Yes. All the <laughs> scenes in which she has like knowing and knowledge and like, and, and as we learn is able to sort of turn that into some, some power and advocacy on her own behalf. If even kind of like behind the scenes are really, really fabulous. It's a really fabulous dynamic. Yeah. A lot of people don't like, like they, you know there's always been ship wars and like people are like they should have ended up together but I think what May is people don't like May but I love her because I think that she understands that if she is left behind it will taint her forever and she refuses right. to deal with that right. taint and I think <laughs> taint um, and I think it, <laughs> sorry, I'm like, I, Edith Wharton would have no. liked that Thank joke. You. she wrote some yeah. plays and erotica is my understanding yeah, she, she had layers to it and a lot of what Um, Edith Wharton's books are really about is like personal desire versus societal expectations and she knows that she can have a happy life with this man he's a simp he's gonna do whatever she wants and and be happy about (laughs) it and why should she give that up for someone who's already scandalized you know and I'm not saying it's not right but it's okay that's that's where I fall on that. <laughs> I found maybe because we've done we did Goodfellas not long ago and it's sort of like fresh in the brain, but just like 
this in in Goodfellas, obviously, and you brought up Casino, like as meditations on the relationship between like personal freedom and like group culture and dynamics are mm. so fascinating. To your point, Sarah, earlier about clearly Martin Scorsese, like one thing he does like very, very well is like deconstruct and explain how, how family dynamics for sure, but how power dynamics work within specific groups. Yeah. And to your points, princess, like the fact that we're watching these two women navigate their relationship with freedom within this dynamic. And then also kind of hilariously in like a dark comic twist, this man who kind of thinks that he has, you know, he, he feels like tortured by the situation in one way or another. But I think if you'd asked him, he would think that he had some agency in this, in this situation. He does have agency in his, in the various choices he makes, but he also comes to learn that the group is really making more decisions yeah. than he realizes. Mm -hmm. Everyone in one way or another is navigating where they exist between the kind of simple poles of like of freedom and the group dynamic. You know what I also love is that this, along with Goodfellas and Casino and The Wolf of Wall Street, has the, well, I'm alive ending. Where just yeah. like an old guy <laughs> shambles away. He's like, I can still pick winners. And that's that. And like, I want a cut of The Age of Innocence where everything is the same. But then when he, when Newland gets up and is walking away, it just plays the Sid Vicious version of yeah. My Way. <laughs> my Way. <laughs> Well, there's there's also a character in this whose name is basically Jordan Belfort, which didn't help the connections <laughs> between this and Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, there's a Jordan Belfort character, essentially. He's scandalous. There's always one. There's always one in every group of rich boys. Oh, there sure is. Princess, what, what about this in particular mm -hmm. grabbed you? Michelle Pfeiffer looks incredible. Like yes. when they're talking about their love and he's like, I can't endure this anymore. And she's like, I'm enduring it. I'm just like, ah, <laughs> this is so powerful. Like, I think my favorite thing about the dynamic between Newland, May and Ellen, which I think is so special and unique is that it really is a story about a man who falls in love with a woman after learning to respect her as a person. Mm. <laughs> But having her always be out of reach because that kind of female person who is not acceptable to anyone in his world. And as to the mm -hmm. ending, I think what's so good about that, because in the book, he says that, like, it's more real to me here than if I went up. Right. Mm. Like, I'm like, this is how you know a woman wrote it, because it's this whole idea of like, I've created this entire mythology and narrative around what this woman means to me. If I go up there then that's going to change. He'll always have this this love, this this care for this person. And if he goes up there and and gives in to all of his fantasies, he could lose that friendship. You know, like it's it's really hmm. their equalness is so is so tied in with them not actually being that intimate. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it would change so much that neither of them know about yet. It's because they have this respect that is never tarnished and never fades. And it's like, if they were married, they'd have to know each other as people beyond that. And then that innocence, that innocence of that intense love will be lost. Mm -hmm. That makes me think that Titanic was really influenced by this movie, which I also started to think just was sort of the like the woman's voice taking you through these gatherings of the the Gilded Age crazy rich people 
you know, that's what we got in Titanic with Gloria Stewart as well. And I guess the fact, I mean, Titanic is like the same model, like every James Cameron movie is pretty much where it's like, you can like have this great love, but then like the guy has to die pretty quickly by saving you from something because that's like the height of romance. And just the idea of heterosexual, heteropatriarchal love, like lasting in the long term, I think has seemed impossible to many people over time who've like expressed that in a way that has become some kind of a legendary love story. Also the bridges of Madison County comes to mind. To that point, it's so it's always so fascinating to me that James Cameron gets that because I I'm under the impression based on what I know that James Cameron is a shitty husband or just like a not present husband. Well, but then when making Titanic, he cheated on Linda Hamilton with Susie Amos, and then he fell in love, and now he can't make good movies anymore. So. Oh my god! Well, is my my question on that was like is how is Scorsese as a partner? Do we know? Well, I'm sure he was on a lot of coke during some of his relationships. <laughs> oh, Marty. I'm always fascinated with like who can nail because like I was so taken by the fact that this movie ends and my read in the end is like a little is a little different than yours, Sarah, because like it mm. sounded like in your I took him as bitter. Mm. Hmm. And I could be wrong, but like he when he says and it's it's more for me, it was more in the tone of him saying she never asked me because the son says hmm. a mother asked you to, you know, to give that up for your life or whatever. And I, I had read it as bitter to the point where at the end we see that the movie is dedicated to Martin Scorsese's father. And I don't know if his father had had died. I would imagine based on the ages, that would be the case. I think he did shortly before. Or if his father was just trapped. <laughs> he died from putting too much onions in the sauce. <laughs> Which is a sin also. It is a huge it is a huge sin that I'm guilty of often. I couldn't tell or if like the the implied take was that he was appreciative of how things ended up or if he was resentful and bitter about how things were ended up. But I did appreciate that our last shot of him is him walking away. On the one hand, I feel like is there going to be bitterness? Absolutely. Scorsese loves to have characters that have like doubt at the end of all their things. But mm. what can you do at that point but walk away? Like I, I think about right. like it's the same reason why Jack dies like to bring up that. I, and I think it's the same reason why I tend to really love stories about two people who fall in love and then don't end up together because I think there is something about having the magic of that person be like encased in amber in your mind that can never be as good as you want it to be. And I think that I also view a lot of the choices as like Edith Wharton's and not necessarily Scorsese's. And so I Mm, think to myself like, so what it, why does Edith Wharton want these two not to be together? And I think it's because she wants also for Ellen to not have the burden of feeling responsible for hurting and causing another woman to be damaged. Like, I feel like she has a lot of empathy for May because she knows that if like this, whole thing ends may is going to be the one to to take on those burdens and she doesn't necessarily want that it's soft solidarity it's like i don't want to be responsible totally. for being part of another scandal because them ending up together could is also not good for either of them <laughs> well i love too that it's never to all of those points to those like beautiful points like it's the <laughs> 
the movie never points to any of that. It's one of those things where like it shows all of that happening and sort of and it's implied in the characters, but it, it we never get like, you know, a saccharine speech from Michelle Pfeiffer explaining why she's making the decisions that she is Mm -hmm. like you're left you're left to draw those conclusions yourself and i I drew those same conclusions like i got the sense that she's like you know she doesn't want to put may through this i got some sense that may understanding the dynamics of the situation maybe she wasn't entirely sure she was pregnant and then she was finally sure that she was pregnant i get the sense that like maybe she was you know, sort of like pleading her case a bit in the conversation with regard to like what the the new dynamic of the family was going to be in this conversation that we knew that was beautiful, but we didn't get us we didn't get to see. But I I love so much in this movie that like all of these things, all of those things that you just said, are things that are evident. Uh, obviously, if you're watching and experiencing them, but are never like explicitly underscored by a narrator, even though we have the luxury of a narrator through through some of the movie. I think that's what makes Scorsese narration so effective, at least for Mm. me and a lot of other people, because I I was thinking (laughs) while watching this about the scene in Adaptation where they have like (laughs) Charlie Kaufman going to the screenwriting weekend course and like, you know, voiceovering to himself as he has been doing for the whole movie and the instructor Brian Cox Post Manhunter pre succession Brian Cox, the wilderness <laughs> years, going, and God help you if you use voiceover, you know? And yeah. <laughs> and I think what's so great about Scorsese voiceover is A, that, but in Goodfellas and Casino, it's taken directly from Nick Pelleggi's basically, I assume, slightly condensed versions of just these actual criminal guys just sort of rambling about their lives. And we have stuff like the moment in The Wolf of Wall Street where Jordan is talking about like, the guy who christened their new building by like fucking the secretary in the elevator. And he's like, they got married later on, which surprised me because she blew every single guy in that office. A few years later, he got depressed and killed himself. Mm. Right, anyway, right. And <laughs> it's like such a macabre, horrible laugh line. But to me, it's funny because it's like, oh, yeah, Jordan's like a really bad person. And there are just right. little moments where the the narration reveals itself by coming from him. But it's not narration being like, Jordan was a pretty insensitive guy. It's just like, (laughs) and it feels the same way in this, you know, where it's like this, I mean, this narrator voice, I think it's, it works so well. I mean, what do you guys think? I like it. I also like, I'm always surprised that I like it because one of the, one of my many issues with Outlander is all the damn voiceover. And I'm just like, I don't need to hear all of these thoughts. They're not all (laughs) worth sharing. (laughs) That's like the the Dune voiceover where it's like, you can just show me people making eye contact. I don't need to hear what they're thinking (laughs) every time. (laughs) Yeah, I think about kind of a pivot, but like it reminds me of like, I heard about with the Northmen, part of what the issue was with Edgar's is he got all these notes about like, there's not enough talking. You need to add more Mm. talking to explain things. And I'm like, but we should also just be going on a journey. So I feel like the, the narration adds to things and doesn't take mm. away. Like it doesn't take me out of the film and it doesn't, like you said, doesn't explain all of these feelings that the characters are going through. It's just kind of like a helpful brush over the canvas to know that we're going to another painting. It never feels like it has to draw a conclusion for you. And I, and I really appreciate that. You said that like some people don't like May. It never, it never dawned on me that that would be the case. But as soon as you said that, I guess it's immediately evident that people that people would have biases here. Can you can you talk about why you like May and and why you think people are turned off by her? 
you have to understand there are people engaging in wars over the their favorite wife of Henry VIII. So anything can be argued <laughs> at any time. I mean, Anne of Cleves, obviously. That is that's my number two. And they're all better than Henry, so it doesn't really matter. So there you go. <laughs> the reason why a lot of people don't really like May is because they find her to be manipulative. And I feel like mm. in stories like this, it's very easy to kind of be like, there's a good woman and a bad woman. And it's coded that way. Funny enough, in the book, the hair colors are reversed. Ellen mm. is the one oh. with dark hair. Because she's the Veronica. Exactly. And in and in the thing, May is the the innocent blonde. She is the picture of this like cherubic blonde haired person. And so like that is part of the manipulation as well. It's like, look at how we assume that certain women should be because of Betty and Veronica tropes. So that's a part of it as well. And I think why I like May, one, I tend to like female characters that people dislike. I think Winona Ryder has huge top energy there is no one to blame for misogyny forcing these two women to not be happy because they have to marry daniel day lewis like that's everybody Mm. else's fault in a perfect world she should be able to just find another partner that would make her happy and move on but the situation is because she would be the one looked at as flawed or imperfect, she has to look out for number one. And I will never fault a woman in a time period for doing that. And I think it makes her more interesting. I think what is compelling about her is that she uses all of these feminine charms to keep him. And I wouldn't even say she traps him because he was there to begin with. He was perfectly content to be her husband and like, I'm gonna like make her smart and teach her with all my brain, with my man brain. And then he was like, wait, I could I could meet a woman who already is fully complete and my equal and I can love her. And I'm like, that's your fault, bro. <laughs> right. The first thing we hear of him, and I love this description, is that he questioned conformity in private. In public, he upheld family values. Yeah. Like, I love that, that, like, this is, like, someone who is, like, who's questioning these things, but, like, is not yet, I mean, because of many different dynamics, is not yet, like, strong enough to, like, stand by them. That sums up, like, many people I know generally. (laughs) That's big leftist Twitter energy. Mm. It's like, oh, <laughs> yes, <yeah>. yes, yes, <laughs> fuck, yes, that's so true. So Newland is like a Twitter lefty, basically. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah, we, we see this situation, which like over and over, he has some out. Mm-hmm. He's pushing this engagement. He has various outs in which he, in which he could get out of it. He does not do that because he still feels like this obligation to be in it. And he feels like he has to do like whatever the perceived right thing is. I love the rhythm of revelation behind May because, Mm. you know, for the first act of the movie, like we we don't necessarily believe there's a thought in May's head because that's how she's described and illustrated in in the interactions and, and, and what happens. And then she realizes kind of everything that's going on and I understand like there's negative connotations with manipulation, but like she understands enough, like the levers of power that she has access to, to use them to her advantage. And I think she does a really great job doing that. And then in the narration, when we find out that she's died, even the narration kind of suggests 
she died naive. She died believing the world was great and like everyone felt like they had to hold their tongue in talking about how the world actually was. And then finally, we learn via her son that she was well aware of the dynamic that was before her. And she was so well aware that, you know, she referred to this affair that had happened, whatever, like 30 to 40 years prior and had given her son a glimpse into what her his father's life was like beforehand. So like, I find her to be like both like a sympathetic character and like actually like a quite admirable character. She's like Tywin Lannister, you know what I mean? It's like, she's yeah. very much like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wear the, the crown. I'm just the hand of the king, just chilling. I would, I would never send the mountain to the, to the fingers. Um, But yeah, I totally mm. agree with everything you're saying. I think that she navigates society so elegantly and i love how daniel day lewis his whole care his whole thing with may is that like the more he realizes that women should be allowed to be more dynamic the more he's like (laughs) why isn't she more dynamic i'm like but you were cool with that 25 minutes ago daniel day lewis you really have to look at yourself and see how like his disillusionment to me is comedic it's like a farce because it's like this is what you wanted and now that you have it but you know that something can be different now you want to be like blaming her for being quote-unquote vapid when that was exactly why you wanted her to begin with yes well if i were ellen i would have the thought of like boy like if i run off with this guy and it all goes pear-shaped because he's kind of an idiot then like Mm-hmm. then where will everyone be? Right. So I haven't read The Age of Innocence, but I did read like 10 years ago now, so I'm going to misremember stuff. But I read and really loved The House of Mirth. Great book. Which is about a woman who falls because she makes mistakes like hanging out with Dan Aykroyd and stuff in the movie version. <laughs> and it's, again, just about like the very slim margin of safety within power that women have and also what happens if you wait too long to get married dun 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 Mm -hmm. and what i remember about the book and princess i bet you have like a more recent take on this because this is kind of a musty memory but what i remember is that she has a romance with this guy who she does have kind of a love connection with but he's also like too brainwashed by society to like save her basically or to do anything to mitigate her situation and in fact probably makes it worse yeah like as i recall because it has been a while for me as well but she wants to protect her friend i think his name is like lauren something selden or something yes selden yeah so they have like a connection and she gives up so much stuff to to protect him, you know, like this person who is like not yeah. perfectly. Because men must be protected. They're delicate little flowers. Exactly. You know? And the fascination is that, you know, he's different from everybody else. Like he's not mm. wealthy. He, you know, it's like kind of like Downton Abbey. Like he's a lawyer. He's like working class, but he's friends with, you know, the Crawleys. So he can like navigate mm. these these realms in a place that he can't. And he can be honest about people and who Lily is. And they had that admiration, but he too believes rumors and he can't help but be a part of that system. And so what I what I love about it too is that like Wharton is really calling out the the weakness of men to really be Mm-hmm. the architects in a system where they have more power to make change mm. like all of these men are complaining about not being able to like i can't be with you da, da, da. but it's like but you could 
You just don't you just don't want to risk the social capital you have mm. to make enough waves to protect me. And that's something that May knows. And May is like, okay, you're not gonna do you're not gonna protect me. You're not gonna handle this delicately. I'm gonna have to take you by the ears and make this happen for me because I'm not gonna be yeah. shamed. I love that. I love that. You both had had either uh, mentioned or acknowledged the, the other in saying so, sort of like the eroticism of this movie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Strong agree. I watched this on JetBlue, and even though there is no nudity <laughs> and the strongest word used is hell, I felt like I was watching something in public maybe I shouldn't have been yeah. because this movie is simmering. Can you talk about some of those elements and like what makes this work in that way? Bridgerton got criticized this latest season for not being as sexy. And that's when I knew these people didn't know what they were talking about. You know, <laughs> as a critic, I try not to like bash criticdom because we, we all swim in the same pool. But I was just like, are you telling me that you do not understand the delicious tension of a glance? Yeah, they are telling you that. The, the, the touching of a hem of a skirt. I'm like, get, then get out of my pool. You know, I don't want you here. <laughs> because the Age of Innocence, the, when she, that scene where they're together and she's like, don't make love to me. I was like, this is <laughs> it. This is it. I don't want to see. And it, it's just like this, like when he kisses her neck and just is like smelling her perfume. When he kisses her foot? Uh, so good. Listen, I was like. The, on the floor. On the floor, <laughs> on his knees. As he should when you face Michelle Pfeiffer. Another Wolf mm. of Wall Street parallel. I love just finding the themes. Yeah. It really is. That to me is the most erotic thing. Like sex is like, sometimes a good sex scene can be done really well, but there's a reason why one of the most erotic moments in cinema is that handprint in Titanic. Yeah. That tells you everything you need to know. Great point. So it's like, you don't need to see it. You just can tell from all the tension, from the drawing, from the draw me like your French girls to the dancing, that that handprint is earned. <laughs> yes. And I think we talked about this in the episode we did on Titanic, but I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure we did. But I realized fairly recently that like that essentially is a money shot of Rose's orgasm. Because mm -hmm. right. I assume it's her hand, you know, like spasming at like the moment of compulsion mm -hmm. and <laughs> James Cameron invented the money shot for women. Okay. <laughs> he invented one of them. Oh, so I did look up something because we were asking like, why is Scorsese good at this? So he co-wrote this with a man named Jay Cox mm -hmm. spelled the way you think. And he also apparently did an uncredited rewrite of James Cameron's screenplay for Titanic. Oh my God. So there it's it the is. Cox. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I think there's there's room for for explicit scenes, obviously, but like the less explicit with regard to detail, the more you can fill in the blanks with how it applies to your own situation. Mm -hmm. Um, this is also Michelle Pfeiffer, like coming after Dangerous Liaisons, where she was also very much being seduced, the poutiest mouth, like, <laughs> of like her face is inherently erotic because it's so emotional. Like, when, when she gets flushed, it happens from, like, her nose to her lips to everything. You feel this, you mm. feel the intensity of her emotions because of how she can just control her face to just really feel all these things. You know, I don't really, Daniel DeLeo's, he's a, he seems very tall. I think that's great. It's how drawn he is to Michelle Pfeiffer. And I'm like, me too. Yeah. 
I also I also would kiss Michelle Pfeiffer's foot and be like, thank you so much. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, just the, depicting that worshipful quality is obviously very sexy. And I think just thinking about these things that we're agreeing about the eroticism of, I'm formulating a theory that like watching people experience intense desire is maybe often the more exciting thing. Because if you're watching them satisfying that, you're like, oh, that's nice. That's hot. You know, or it could be great. It could be much better than that. But it's like, what? It, you know, desire over the span of many minutes. Like, Marty knows. Marty knows what he's doing to us. Well, well, to your point, Sarah, about like there being like good food. It's like it's like rules yeah. in like food and cinema is that it's like you want to see like food be prepared, arranged, like like to see what it symbolizes, to see how it's to see how it's presented, et cetera. You don't want to see someone eat food. Not for like several minutes, or if you want to watch a mukbang video, and that you can, you have a whole genre for that. Mm -hmm. So that's really yes, great. yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. There are some people who want to do it, not me. <laughs> yes, yes. The other thing that we have not talked about that I I loved is so many of the character, like so many of the people in this movie. We get Geraldine Chaplin, which is great. Mm -hmm. There's Richard Richard Grant. The headmaster from Welton and Dead Poet Society, I think. Yes. Yes. And <laughs> Joanne Woodward is the um is the narrator, which is great. And then Miriam is it McGoyles? Is that how you say her last name? Miriam Margulies? I think it's I think it's Miriam Margulies, yeah. The Granny so fucking great that character is so great i love her so much i love that dynamic i love that she just likes she likes to like sit around and goss and like talk you know to to like <laughs> yeah. wield her financial power to make judgments like that character is fantastic the the way the camera moves through her house around her paintings her gallery wall, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's worth saying that I don't think New York is a character here as much as just the sets are a character, the designs, mm. the houses, the tables, the food, the paintings, the the choreography, the dance, you know, just I love experiencing this as a, a movie that is successfully using art direction to tell an entire story and to mm. and i think to make it very clear why these people can't be together i think it's the world feels so immersive that i think it it really does make sense in a way that it wouldn't if you didn't feel like you were inside of another society and yet one very recognizable in the bones of what we have absolutely and i think i don't know if this is accurate so someone will fact check me but i remember someone saying that Scorsese sees this movie as like one of his most violent in a way. Yeah. The violence of just an entire society keeping two people apart. For, there's no money involved. It's, this, it's cruelty for cruelty's sake. Mm. And that is the most violent. And to have right. a mm. love like unfulfilled, to have all these doubts, you know, consumed, to have a half lived life is violent. Mm. And it's so beautiful that he understands that and puts it along the cinematic lines of this elegance you know it's it, it's yeah. perfectly gilded and i think that's really the power of the cinematography and his eye in this film especially like everything feels intentional and thoughtful and really understanding that like every setting every tea party table is a war zone hmm. they're just fighting a different kind of battle what I love about it is because it's so accentuated and because 
it's so stylized and because it's like of a very different era and the rules as they are presented feel foreign because they're not explicitly the rules that we deal with now. Mm-hmm. It's an easier to understand model about how these things apply to our lives right now. Like if you watch a movie that like looks like your life, it's difficult to be like, oh, I see where I like exist in this specific power dynamic. But like in this where it's like a lot more over and explicit, at least in sort of how it's being presented, it made me meditate on things where it's like, oh, I think like I have particular freedoms in moments and maybe I have much less <laughs> than I actually do because there are all, all of these social dynamics that I'm not like immediately and always paying attention to, but like they are very much there and uh, a huge part of uh, decision making that I'm not always, you know, precisely aware of mm. or acutely aware of, I should say. Oh, and just one as a fun fact, shout out to Joanne Woodward, because she is officially, upon the death of our beloved Olivia de Havilland, the oldest living Best Actress Academy Award winner. Oh, wow. So shout out to her. (gasps) Joanne. Oh, thanks, Joanne, for being out there. I love her. That's another thing. I love when an actress gets to act, just go all out and like have like a truly meaty role that she can do something with. I mean, one of the reasons I defend Scorsese against the charge that he makes like broy movies for bros is I'm like, hey, gangster movies are great and you don't have to like them, but there's a lot going on. And it's nice for men to study themselves and their weird dynamics because maybe it'll provoke thought sometimes. I know it doesn't always, but sometimes it does, I think, I hope. And also there's roles for women that allow them to do something. Like I think Sharon Stone in Casino, that seems like... Mm -hmm a role where it's the only thing I've seen her in where you can see her using all of her powers and you're like, Oh, Holy fuck. Sharon Stone is like bigger and better than anyone has ever given her space to be is my read of it. And I feel like these roles too, especially Ellen, you have this incredible technology in Michelle Pfeiffer. And this is like, it feels like something she's evenly matched for. Absolutely. One of the things that we've talked about, like in terms of like the gender, because that comes up so often with Scorsese's work to just to go off what you were saying, Sarah, is that this is entirely a thing about masculinity. You know, his entire thing is about how to navigate this stuff as a man being told to operate one way, but feeling another like that is the kind of like deep emotional thought that a director like Scorsese showing makes so prolific. It's like he's asking those questions in this love story, you know, of how right. of how men try and fail to live up to their expectations and what it takes away from them. Like, could he have been a better father if he had been in love? We don't know. And I think those are the interesting questions that he's asking through this lens hmm. and through the love story that he's putting together. And Sharon Stone is fantastic. I agree with you a thousand percent. <laughs> One of the things I really enjoy about the fact that, you know, we see Daniel Day-Lewis's character, he's maintaining these two different relationships in his contribution in each of the relationships. We see like where he's strong in one place, you know, like basically if you see someone being strong in one setting, you don't necessarily see how it's making them weak in another setting. And I love like in all of the places where like he's doing his best, which is just thirsting for Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. That's all of our best. I was saying, it's what, it's what we can do. <laughs> exactly. His his best work is worship. The point is that, like, usually we see, we see people in, you know, even when we see them in three dimensions in film, like, we see them in a specific context and don't get to see, like, 
at what expense. And in this, we get to see that in real time. And we get to see like anytime he is being interesting, it's coming at this, you know, this weird sniveling expense where he's lying to his wife. He's lying to his wife to be in order to make the space for that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we should do the question. Yeah. We know that Archer is a father in this movie. Who is the daddy? Definitely Winona Ryder. I mean, yeah, I she's it. serving yeah. daddy all day. That's Academy Award nominated daddy right there. Yes. I think the daddy is cinematographer Michael Ballhouse, <laughs> whose name I hope I'm saying right, and who also was a cinematographer for Goodfellas, did that legendary Copacabana shot. That was him and and a lot of other people. But yeah, I think that one of the things I love about Scorsese movies, especially of this period, is how you get to become this like floating eyeball moving through this complicated world just beautifully and seamlessly and sort of being like in the machine, in the mansion, in the casino, whatever it is. And it's just thrilling. I love it. It's pure cinema. You know, God bless the cinematographers. I, for none of the reasons that we've talked about so far, I want to pick Michelle Pfeiffer specifically, and I haven't read the book, so I don't, I don't have the, the context there either. But like, I don't know how much of her like, oh, I didn't realize my behavior prior to everything we've seen in this movie was something that was going to get me into a lot of societal trouble. And so I I just did it anyway, and I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) I I love that so much. Like, I I love the boldness of her character. I love like maybe the selective naivete about how the behavior lands or maybe the very intentional naivete behind how that behavior lands. But like, I love her character. I can't wait to read this book. I'm very excited. Me too. It's a good read. It's not that long either. Great. You are a good book club. I would love. Yes. Just let me know. (laughs) Just let me know. (laughs) We will. Absolutely. It's very exciting. Is there anything you want to say about the movie that you haven't been able to say, Princess? Just that I think that it's totally underrated. And I just, I also really appreciate that Scorsese really loves this film. Like whenever I've read him talk about it, like he's always saying really positive things about it. So it just feels good to know that he appreciates the fact that he made he made a romance. He made an erotic romance that I think is one of his his best works. I yeah. oh also I forgot Agreed. to say this guy loves triangles. They're all romantic triangle movies, and yeah, they're about loving they really someone are. who doesn't fit in, and then you have to execute them in a cornfield or you know not marry them or whatever. Is the triangle in Goodfellas just the three dudes? Is that who you're referring yeah, to? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Princess Weeks for being on the show. Truly a delight to have you here. Thank you. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats to these episodes that make them sound so good, make the transitions sound so sweet. We appreciate everything you do. Thank you for listening. Find us on Twitter, find us on Instagram, find us on Patreon where you can help support the shows and then get bonuses in return patreon.com slash you are good that's all you need to know for now next week we're going to talk about the movie ready or not it's just going to be sarah and me talking about a huge favorite favorite of yours if you haven't seen it yet you it will a future favorite of yours all right everybody 
We appreciate you. You are good. <laughs>